Good morning. Joining me now, I have Ryan Vandergriff. He is an author of four books about Buddy Holly, including Buddy's final tour. And he says it's one of the highlights in his professional writing life. And so we're going to chat with him today from down in Iowa. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning, Karen. How are you today? I'm doing great. Now, I'm doing this interview because locally we are having the Buddy Holly story being presented as a play at the Cato Ballroom this November. And that is significant for many reasons. And because you are an expert on Buddy Holly, let's talk about why that is significant. Well, of course, uh, I guess uh, as anyone who sort of studies Buddy Holly and sort of knows his story, uh, the Cato Ballroom is where uh, Holly performed uh, on January the 25th of 1959 uh, for his winter dance party tour. so, yeah, very significant in the uh, annals of rock and roll history, if you will. And how did you get so interested in Buddy Holly's life and, and enough to write four books about it? <laughs> yeah, I kind of did overkill on that, I think. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, after, uh, I don't know, 1,100 pages, I think I wrote in all about that wow. tour. And uh, I kind of uh, have to blame my, my father. <laughs> I sort of inherited his uh, record collection. And uh, among uh, the myriad of records were uh, a handful of Buddy Holly albums. And I was like 14 at the time. I had never heard of Buddy Holly. Um, but I was really curious, so I, I put, the, uh, put the needle on the, uh, the vinyl, and uh, suddenly a whole new world opened to me, uh, this music that was created back in 1959. When I heard it in 1987, uh, was just as relevant to me in 87 as I'm sure it was to teenagers in, like, 1958, 1959, it really just felt very genuine. It felt more significant than the music that a lot of my contemporaries at that time were listening to. Uh, You know, the the country and the heavy metal, uh, you know, I I listened to a little bit of it, but nothing really uh, spoke to me musically until I uh, listened to my first Buddy Holly album, and it's been a a love affair ever since. And so what connections did you make in terms of in writing these four books? I know that you have a connection with one of our former volunteers, Diane Corey. Mm-hmm. Who yeah, I do. Uh, in fact, going back to when I was in high school, um, I've always been curious about the story behind like some of my favorite songs. So for me, listening to a Buddy Holly tune like That'll Be the Day or It Doesn't Matter Anymore, it just wasn't enough. I wanted to know about the guy who created this music that I just fell in love with. And so I discovered a gentleman in Lubbock, Texas, named Bill Griggs, who was a Buddy Holly historian and ran the Buddy Holly Memorial Society. I got in touch with Bill. This was the days before computers. I don't know if kids know what I'm talking about here, (laughs) but I actually hand-wrote a letter to Bill sent it out via the good old USPS, and uh, within about a week, Bill responded and, you know, gave me so much information about Buddy, and uh, within about, I think, a year's time, I uh, discovered uh, that Diane, uh, Diane Corey, had attended the uh, Mankato January the 25th, 59 show, and not only had she gone there, but she had taken photographs, and Mm -hmm. at that time, she had just started uh, making them available for purchase to fans. So I actually then uh, hand-wrote a letter to Diane Corey, and she was kind enough to respond to me. 
uh, with her own handwritten letter, and she sent out like a little sell sheet along with the, with the letter, and just explaining to me her story and how she wound up at the Cato that night, and just a really sweet lady. And then years later, uh, when I decided to to pick up pen and write a book about that tour, Diane was one of the first people I got in touch with because I long had her address and her contact information. So she was an easy sort of first contact for me. Uh, she was among the first, I think, uh, half a dozen people or so that I actually officially interviewed for my uh, for my first book. And Diane Corey Olson, she married a guy named Armin Olson, who was a wonderful supporter of KMSU as well. She actually passed away of cancer a number of years back, and they have given KMSU the entire collection of her Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper and all those uh, those uh, records, CDs, and things like that. And and I have the yeah. autographed copies, which is really wonderful. So it's really neat awesome. that we had that connection. And, and I really hadn't played much of him before that she came. And she, of course, volunteered here, so wanted to hear him all the time, and which was really, really a lot of fun. So you have used some of her photos, I know, in your books, correct? Yeah. In fact, I used all of her photos that at that time she publicly had been selling, save one, and it was the Buddy Holly photo. And at the time, she wouldn't allow me to use that photo uh, uh, because, you know, she had some concerns about legalities with the Holly estate. Oh. And, uh, yeah, and if you know the photo I'm talking about, it's uh, Buddy Holly on stage at the Cato, and his face is partially obscured by a microphone. But it's still, it's, it's a great photo, and it's, it's Buddy Holly. It's, it's a wonderful shot. But, yeah, she was so kind and so generous. I, you know, I got back in touch with her, and I explained to her what I was attempting to do, which was tell the history of that tour. It's one part uh, sort of a straight historical narrative mixed with uh, the remembrances of the fans who attended those shows back then. And... Uh, you know, she was all aboard, and she was so such a, a real supporter of what I was trying to do. And, um, yeah, I was so sad to, to hear of her passing not too long ago. Uh, she was really one of the truly good people out there. What is the things that you think people will find most fascinating about Buddy Holly's life story? Oh, well, you know, he began really from very humble beginnings in Lubbock, Texas. And within, you know, 22 years, I mean, he just... Uh, he sort of broke down the barriers. He kind of created the template for what a rock and roll star and what a rock and roll band uh, could be. Before Holly came along, you know, there really there really hadn't been, uh, you know, that model that when we think of like the rock and the typical rock and roll band, which is your your lead singer, uh, bass player, lead guitar and drums. That really hadn't been uh, a thing at that point. You know, we had Elvis. But Elvis wasn't a singer-songwriter. Holly was. So Holly combined his, his knack for turning a phrase, you know, formed a band, you know, basically the prototypical rock and roll band. And, you know, within a, about an 18-month period, just shot to the top of the charts and became a real uh, big uh, sensation on the rock and roll scene. I mean, a lot of people might not realize, you know, his career was still very much, um, <clears throat> very, very young at that time. Uh, you know, he had like a, a handful of hits by that point. But uh, the fill-in was, I think, in the industry and I think among the fans who followed his music in 58, 57, 58, early 59, I think the fill-in was the best was yet to come. 
and that was very fascinating to me. Uh, number one, just like, wow, what, what else would have followed? And also that, that career was cut so short for such an unlikely tour of all things. I mean, the Winter Dance Party was a huge event, you know, to all the fans that attended because it toured the upper Midwest at a time, you know, a time of the year when rock shows typically didn't go out that way because just because of the extreme cold. So it was really, really a big deal to all the teenagers who attended. And that was also an interesting part of the story to me, which is, you know, how did those teenagers feel? You know, they, you know, not only did they go to these shows, but, you know, shortly afterwards, they received that horrible news, you know, of the plane crash, which, you know, took the lives of Holly and uh, his fellow tour mates, Richie Valens and J.P. Richardson. Uh, and it's just, it's a fascinating story. And I just hadn't really felt like it had been done uh, a particular kind of justice. And so I just, uh, being a little bit younger than I am now, I was uh, full of myself and I thought I could maybe... Uh, <laughs> be the person to tell that story and uh from the response I you know I got over over the years I think I did a, a pretty decent job <laughs> Ryan would you take us through that story of the the day the music died is what it's called and and at the time I know there was a story about how country music legend Waylon Jennings was a member of Buddy Holly's band at that time and he gave up a seat on the night of that fatal airplane ride in 1959 to the Big Bopper so talk a little bit about through that story of how it all kind of unfolded well, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing. The Winter Dance Party Tour is really a beginner's tour. If you look at the lineup, uh, you had, obviously, Buddy Holly, who headlined the tour, but then everyone else, they were all sort of just getting started. Dion and the Belmonts, Frankie Sardo, Richie Valens, the Big Bopper, they were very much uh, fresh on the scene, and Holly was the veteran of that, of that particular tour. Uh, you know, and he wound up on that tour because his record sales uh, had uh, kind of gone into a uh, temporary decline, and he was also cash poor. He had a lot of holdings, he had a lot of publishing money to him and the like, but he simply didn't have ready cash on his in his pocket. And so it just so happened that that's how he wound up on that tour. And the night in question, his last uh, venue performance was in Clear Lake, Iowa at the Surf Ballroom, which uh, ironically was a last-minute fill-in. If you go back to the original tour itinerary, uh, Clear Lake, uh, the February the second fifty nine show was a uh, an open date, uh, penciled in at the last uh, possible minute. It was supposed to be an off day for Holly, and by that point in time, you know they'd had considerable trouble with their buses. Uh, a lot of their buses had broken down, couldn't keep out the extreme cold, you know, of the Midwest mm-hmm. that time of the year. And uh, Holly just kind of had enough, you know. He was very uh, meticulous with his appearance, and I think he felt his his onstage performance uh, was beginning to kind of suffer a little bit because of the uh, because of the can- some of the canceled shows, because of the uh, the tour buses breaking down. So he got it in his head that he was going to charter a flight out to their next venue. And originally, he had chartered that flight for himself and his uh, two sidemen, Waylon Jennings, who at that time, no one knew who Waylon mm-hmm. Jennings was, and uh, Tommy Alsup. Well, you know, fate kind of had other plans. Uh, word got out, you know, among the entertainers that Holly was going to fly out instead of bussing it to the next gig. So uh, throughout that evening, there was a lot of jostling for who was going <laughs> to fly on that plane with Buddy Holly. Buddy Holly was always going to be on that plane, uh, you know, but uh, 
the uh, the other. It was a three seater for three three passengers and the pilot. So it was always up in the air, if you will, as far as like who else was going to go along with them. Uh, the big bopper had been suffering uh, from a cold, so he approached. He approached uh, actually Waylon Jennings and asked Waylon if he could take his seat on the bus, saying that he wasn't feeling good. He was hoping to get in early and get a shot at the doctors, hopefully kick this uh, sort of flu that he had. Waylon gave up his seat to the bopper, and then at the very last possible minute, uh, Tommy also gave up his seat to Richie Valens. Mm. And when I say last possible minute, uh, Alsip was in the process of actually loading up the uh, the car to go to the airport. The the performance at the surf was over, and that car was going to take off within probably three or four minutes. When Valens finally kind of won the day, if you will, and you know finally you know asked Alsip to flip a coin with him. It's like, look, let's flip a coin. If uh, if it lands on heads, then you know I get your seat on the plane. If it's tails, then I'll just take the bus. And of course, we all know what happened. Uh, uh, that that coin did come up heads, and sadly, you know, Valens uh, wound up on that uh, plate, uh, that plane alongside Holly, and uh, the rest, as they say, is uh, rock and roll history. Wow! And then now, I know my sister just visited not too long ago. There's like a, a setup or a, a memorial or something. It's in Clear Lake, Iowa, where the plane crashed. Is that correct? Yeah, right. actually. Um, uh, the the last show was in, in Clear Lake, and uh, the plane crashed right outside of Clear Lake in Mason mm-hmm. City, which it's pretty interchangeable. They kind of bleed into one another. Uh-huh. But yeah, there is a really there's a nice little um, there's a pair of uh, a huge pair of glasses uh, that marks the uh, the beginning of the crash site, the path to the crash site. And there's uh, you know there's some uh, trinkets there's some uh, you know some uh, nice little memorial from a fan at the site itself, but you know the the site where that plane crashed it's still farmland, um, it's still very much it's not a, a commercial property at all, so when you walk out there it's really quite bracing and it it's really quite you know easy to cast your mind back to 1959. Uh, that field is just as desolate now as it was then. And the only difference, I think, uh, in 59, uh, the farmer uh, was growing soybeans, and now it's corn. But other than that, I mean, it's, it's, it's the exact, it's, you just don't even have to close your eyes. You're just there. You walk that path. You are back in 1959. Well, I think this this play that they're doing the, the about the Buddy Holly history and that I think it will reflect on kind of the influence that he had. He has been said to influence Paul McCartney and John Lennon musically, and that uh, the band named the Crickets was part of the reason that Lennon and McCartney named their groups the the Beatles. Did you ever do any research about that? Oh yeah, you know, and, and certainly the uh, in my fourth book. Uh, <laughs> Uh, shameless plug here, but yeah, it, obviously I, I touch on the legacy of you know not just Buddy, but also the other two artists that died along with him. And yeah, their their influence, their their time on this earth was you know quite short, but boy, did their influence run really deep, especially Buddy Holly. Uh, he's considered you know obviously uh, you know one of the uh, pioneers, one of the fathers of early rock and roll. I don't think, you know, without Buddy Holly and the Crickets, which is the name of Holly's backing band, the Crickets, I don't think you would have had the Beatles. Or if you would have had the Beatles, I don't think they would have been the Beatles as we now know them. They had such an influence, and the Rolling Stones were so influenced by by Buddy Holly. 
uh, it's uh, it's really quite amazing how in 18 months, you know, Holly could you know have had such an impact. And, you know, and we're talking about the impact he had on, you know, these big artists. He also had such a huge impact just on the, the kids that went to go see him on those uh, venue stops back in 1959 for the Winter Dance Party Tour. I interviewed probably about a dozen and a half uh, fans who attended the Mankato uh, show. And, you know, they, you know, so many of them just instantly, they just had such great recall about... Mm you know, just how approachable the stars were. They weren't surrounded by bodyguards. It's nothing like today, you know. I mean, it was just, it was very much a mom-and-pop operation, early rock and roll. So these were just guys who just happened to, you know, scored big on the charts, but they they weren't above, like, uh, for example, the Mankato show. After the show that night, uh, a handful of the stars from that tour actually went to a birthday party uh, a fan who was at the show i think she had just turned 16 and she invited the stars to uh to her house to her actually her apartment that she shared with her mom to celebrate her 16th birthday and they actually showed up wow, <laughs> wow. i can't see that happening now you know no uh but so yeah and it, they had an impact both on, you know, the stars and the uh, the so-called little people also that, you know, uh, followed them, at, you know, at those shows and who bought their records. Just, uh, they had a, such a tremendous impact. I, don't, I just don't think you can overstate it at all. I really don't. I've even heard that Bob Dylan was impacted by Buddy Holly. Yeah, Bob Dylan, yes, because he actually uh, was one of the attendees at the Winter Dance Party, I believe, in Duluth, uh, January the 31st, 1959. Um, In fact, there's a famous story that Bob Dylan tells, you know, often about how standing in the the audience that evening, he actually, there was a brief moment where he felt like he made eye contact with Buddy Holly, and he said he felt like, for some reason, there was an energy with that eye contact that... You know, in later years, he sort of credited that kind of transferal, if you will, of energy and like the development of a lot of his music. I mean, uh, yeah, Buddy Holly is, I mean, really, there's no getting around it. Without Buddy Holly, you don't have rock and roll. You really don't. Um, Elvis Presley was a stylist. He was a great stylist. He was a great performer. But again, he didn't write his own material. Buddy Holly was kind of the whole package. He... You know, Holly also did covers, but a majority of his work was written by Buddy Holly or co-written, you know, with uh, other artists. So, I mean, his impact ran really, really deep, and there's just no getting around it. Without Buddy Holly, you don't have rock and roll. <laughs> have you ever reflected back to think that if Buddy Holly and the his band were not killed in that crash, that maybe they would have been as big as the Beatles? Oh, yeah, you know, it's always a very easy to Monday morning quarterback it, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I, You know, I think it's, it's hard to sort of quantify what Buddy Holly would have become, because at the time of his death, he had so many plans afoot. He was about to make a return uh, trip to, to, to England. He was going to do a second tour in England. Um, he was uh, in the process of starting his own uh, record company. Uh, he was you know, getting into producing more. He was writing for other artists, like the Everly Brothers. Um, he, you know, he, he, would have been, he would have been huge. There's just no, no getting around it. 
And there was even, I know there were, there were talks among, you know, uh, say, uh, Buddy Holly and Richie Valens. Buddy Holly actually wanted to record Richie Valens. He wanted to fly Richie out to Lubbock, Texas. You know, this California kid, he wanted this 17-year-old wonderkind in Lubbock so he could record Richie Valens. And, of course, Valens was sort of the hot shot on that Winter Dance Party tour. Uh, he had the biggest chart hits at the time. Um, you know, Holly had been around a little bit longer, but Valens had, I think, the number two song in the country with Donna, uh, backed with La Bamba, which was number 17. And Holly, uh, you know, like I said, he, he, was, uh, he was a little bit in a, a bit of a decline, if you will, record chart-wise, but he was kind of climbing back up there. He had a new release, uh, which dropped January the 5th of 59, called It Doesn't Matter Anymore, which was written by Paul Anka, specifically for Buddy Holly beautiful tune probably one of my favorite holly tunes and that song was very much up and coming uh i think it crested at like number 13 after the crash but i honestly feel if holly had been alive to to push and promote that uh, i think that song would have gone all the way to number one i think it would have been his biggest hit since probably peggy sue it's always easy to like you said back backyard quarterback after the fact but you know who knows sure. what what could have happened and then Don McLean wrote a song American Pie I always wondered what that was about but apparently it was an ode to Buddy Holly you know I know Don is you know obviously the opening lines especially of American Pie very much about Buddy Holly and I know Don's even mentioned that American Pie is sort of a homage to the 50s and the 1960s so Buddy Holly is kind of the focal point, but there's a lot of other stuff, really a lot of other neat stuff going on in that song. But, you know, uh, that song, though, American Pie, courtesy of Mr. Don McLean, it really brought Buddy Holly back to the uh, public conscience, if you will, because Buddy had kind of been forgotten about, you know, after after he died. After that plane crash, uh it was more teen idols, you know, Fabian, Frankie Avalon, Jimmy Clanton, sort of these good-looking, you know, acts that they didn't have a lot of substance, but they kind of got by on their looks. Um, and then, you know, of course, you had the British invasion. So, you know, I think people had kind of forgotten about Buddy, and Don sort of, you know, you know, woke everybody up and said, no, actually, we had something pretty amazing here. Look at what we lost. And I think that began the whole process of reevaluation, you know, reevaluating Buddy's place in rock and roll. And I certainly, I, I put that song up there, uh, you know, one of the top things that really uh, contributed to a Buddy Holly renaissance, absolutely. Obviously, by writing four books, you don't want him to be forgotten in history. Can <laughs> you give us the title of those four books so if people want to look them up? By the way, I should let them people know that I'm talking with Ryan Vandergriff, who is the author of these four books. Right. Well, yeah, sure. Thank, thank you for the, the, the nice words about my books. Uh, they, they were, in every sense of the word, uh, a labor of love, uh, not really done for money, uh, although I did charge. <laughs> <laughs> you know, had, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, uh, yeah, the first three books, uh, they all go under one title, and uh, that's Dancing as If There's No Tomorrow. And each book is sort of uh, broken apart by tour date. So the first book is January the 23rd through the 28th. The second book is January the 29th through February the 1st. third book is all about the Surf Ballroom Show. 
And uh, then I wrote a fourth book, which was all about the plane crash. And that uh, actually goes under another title. That, that book is called In Flanders Filled, The Curious Death and Rebirth of Buddy Holly. Oh. That book is available on Amazon. You can just uh, pop on over to Amazon, and uh, there it is. But uh, the other three books have sadly fallen out of print. Uh, I, In the back of my mind, I have this thought that I, I will go back and put those you know, back into print and, you know, possibly even add some information. So if there's anybody listening to this right now who'd like to contribute some memories, feel free to reach out. Uh, you know, I'd love to, you know, I'd still love to talk to anybody who attended those shows or who knows anyone who might have attended those shows. How can people get in touch with you, Ryan? Well, you can always reach me at, uh, uh, again, no big surprise, my email here, uh, buddyholly, buddyholly at hotmail.com. Uh, I'm there 24-7, so, again, if uh, anybody would like to, you know, say a few words about Buddy, have if they have any memories, any mementos, photos, whatever, by all means, uh, feel free to drop me a line and chew the fat with me. I, I'm always interested in talking to to anyone about Buddy Holly. Uh, again, uh, a childhood hero of mine, and I have a feeling, uh, yeah, Buddy will be with me till the day I die. <laughs> <laughs> and so tell me what you do now, Ryan. Obviously, you've done these four books about Buddy Holly. What do you do in life as we know it today? <laughs> right, the twilight zone uh, that yeah. we're in today. Uh, well... I uh, I write about pop culture now. I write oh. about movies. I write about comic books. I write about music. Um, I'm working on a uh, new book right now uh, about a, a little movie called Dogfight, which starred River mm-hmm. Phoenix. Uh, so I've kind of branched uh, branched away, if you will, from uh, Buddy. But you know, it's still obviously Buddy and his music and that tour. And, you know, the teenagers that sort of populated, you know, the landscape of the 1950s, that's all, all still very uh, close to the surface for me. I still have very much a passion for it. And like I said, uh, you know, one day I, I might just, uh, you know, rejigger those first three books and, you know, uh, do some revised editions and... So you never know. Life is uh, unpredictable. <laughs> well, I hope that somebody who is listening will reach out to you. So maybe that will jog some things that will encourage you to do that because it would need to see be need to see those in in print. And and I'm glad to see, like you said, locally we're having this Buddy Holly, the Buddy the Buddy Holly story coming to the Cato Ballroom in November. It's the fourth, fifth, and sixth, and the eleventh, twelfth, and thirteenth. It's a dinner theater show and so it's really a cool thing that it is at the Cato Ballroom here in Mankato so uh, hopefully people will see that and enjoy that and you provide a little context I guess for for the background for this by the way what are your favorite Buddy Holly tunes you have any specifics oh gee whiz this is like Sophie's choice (laughs) to choose between children Uh, yeah uh, you know I I'm gonna give you a song title that most most hardcore Buddy Holly fans never mention as like their favorite, but it's mine. And it, and like I said, it's funny because Buddy did not write the song, but boy, does he own that song. Uh, it Doesn't Matter Anymore, which was the song that he had just released right before he went on that final tour. It's a beautiful song. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, On one hand, it's very upbeat. On the other hand, it's kind of downbeat. It, it's sort of this dichotomy that sort of plays... You know, sort of, it's like this tug of war between the two uh, within like a two minute and 13 second structure. It's beautiful. Early in the morning, which is sort of Buddy Holly kind of going very blues. 
Maybe Baby, Peggy Sue, uh, Every Day. My gosh, the list just goes <laughs> on. I, I, again, for 18 months, he really packed a lot of living uh, into that 18 months, and he he did a lot of stuff that I think a lot of artists even today are kind of scratching their heads and trying to figure out how to catch up with. Uh, to say he was a visionary and ahead of his time would probably be an understatement. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time and being with us here. We've been talking with Ryan Vandergriff. He's in Iowa now, and he is the author of several Buddy Holly books. So people are more than welcome to reach out either via uh, email or via Facebook. I'm on Facebook. You know, and just if they just want to say hi, whatever, that's fine. I'm always happy to talk to fans. On Facebook, is it under Ryan Vandergriff? That's it. You got it. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you so much for your time, Karen. This has been my pleasure.